3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to communities since 1976. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today you'll hear conversations on politics, alternative news, community actions and other updates. I'm Judith Peppard on 3CR, and today we're looking at how a determined community succeeded in stopping energy giant AGL from installing a floating storage regasification unit, or FSRU, at Crib Point in western Port Bay on the Mornington Peninsula, and a pipeline from Crib Point to Pakenham proposed by Australian energy infrastructure business APA. It's May the 1st, and the community has gathered on Balnearing Common to celebrate the news that the project will not go ahead. I went along and asked a few people why they'd come out. Because Western Port is frickin' amazing, and we know how important it is for communities to get together and stand up to corporate interests. I'm here to celebrate a victory of ordinary people over a gas giant. I grew up on the Mornington Peninsula, I'm a grandmother and we're here today because we've been part of the fight. So many people have been. The celebration officially began with Boonarong elder Auntie Diane Summers welcoming us to country. It had a lot of support, the groups like Westernport and others and the Boonarong Land Council. I was lucky enough the day of opening of the submissions where myself and another Bunurong elder, Uncle Mick Edwards, did the opening speeches. We at Bunurong spoke for three days on our history, our culture, our past, our fears for the future, if this went ahead. And we were only one small group, but it was all of the groups together that was very, very powerful. Out of that, the Bunurong Land Council and groups like Save Western Port, we made a lot of friends and I think we were two strong groups and I think people listened to us. Boonarong Elder, Auntie Diane Summers. And while the day was a celebration that the AGL and pipeline projects would not proceed, that might have turned out very differently. Candy Van Root is the president of the Save Western Port campaign. I asked if she could remember where she was when she heard the news on October 17, 2017, that a floating storage regasification unit would be located. 
at Crib Point in Western Port Bay. It was very early in the morning. My phone lit up with a text from a girlfriend saying, have you seen the front page of the ABC News this morning? You better go and have a look. So I immediately went to the website. It had a big picture of what an FSRU would look like with the government right behind it rolling out a red carpet for it. We'd only just moved here and I didn't know anybody. I didn't know who to ring. So I rang AGL and they said, oh yes, we've got community sessions where the community can find out the information. And they were really talking about it as if it was a fait accompli at that time. What did you do next? The community meeting was in Crib Point Community House, a little tiny old school, (laughs) in a back room the following week. So I went to that. There was maybe about 12 or so other people, and they were all saying, oh, yes, this is going to be great. This is going to bring us jobs. And I was saying, but what about all this chlorine in the water? You know, 24 hours of pumping chlorine into the water, because in the meantime, I'd done quite a lot of research. And they said, no, no, this is going to be just what we need. There's going to be a gas shortage, and this will fill the block. I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. I did try and ring the council, but they didn't really seem to know much about it. So I started the page on Facebook. No AGL gasp of Crib Point. How long between when you got the news and you set up the Facebook page? It was about 10 days. I started putting in, you know, environmental, Crib Point, gas, all those sorts of hashtags, and I just kept posting every day. Everything I read, I would share to that page, and gradually the information sessions that AGL were doing started to fill up. And while many people found out about the project via Facebook, Belinda Lewis heard about it from a friend. We'd been travelling and arrived home and a very close friend came to the front door with a grievous look on his face and said, it's great to see you back, but we've got a huge fight on our hands. When we saw that it was AGL, we were well aware they had tens, hundreds of millions of dollars to force their way through and we were just a small local community. It was terrifying. And by April 2018... The Save Western Port Committee had been established. Here's Candy Van Root again. Just a few weeks after we'd first met, we managed to organise a public meeting. There were about 100 people there, and we got experts in to talk about the implications of having an FSIU in the Bay. A new wave of people then joined the Facebook page, and more and more momentum started to gather. And by July, we had a public rally in Hastings, which was extraordinary, and that's when Environment Victoria came on board with us. That was one of the really big highlights, because they came with all their knowledge and experience and skills and talent and supported us fully. And at that rally was Jane Carnegie, now Vice President of Safe Western Port. We heard what people had to say about the project and got extremely alarmed and realised that we had to do more than just attend a rally. It was in around August that individuals in the community, such as myself, plus SWP and other groups, were pushing Minister Wynne to actually have an EES or Environmental Effects Statement for this project. If we hadn't done that and if the Minister had not then in September 2018 agreed to hold an EES, then this project probably would have just been waved through and we would have the FSRU sitting out there at Crib Point today. Getting that agreement was a vital component in the campaign and it really put AGL on notice that this wasn't something that this government was going to allow to sail through. This was the first that I and so many people in the community even got to understand what an EES or environmental effects statement 
actually is and the significance of it prolonging the process and ensuring that there was a really detailed and validated evaluation of all the potential environmental and socio-economic effects that this project could have on the Western Port community. Jane Carnegie, current Vice President of Save Western Port. Chris Atmore, an environmental lawyer, lives in the area. She told me about some of the problems with the environmental effects statement process. The Environment Effects Act, the legislation in Victoria that regulates this whole process, it's incredibly vague. There's a lot of stuff that isn't there that should be there. And the minister has an enormous amount of discretion. I was really surprised that an EES statement wasn't necessarily required for a project of that size. The fact that it's not required automatically is just one indication of what a poor process we have. A sign, I think, of the lack of environmental democracy in Australia. Not only do we have very poor laws that protect the environment, but these kinds of impact assessment processes, if the community does want to go through that process and oppose the project, it's a real David and Goliath situation. On October the 8th, 2018, the Victorian Minister for Planning announced that an environmental effects statement would be required. Before work began, however, the scope of the environmental effects statement needed to be established and the minister released a draft scoping document for comment. Here's Jane Carnegie again. We had around a month to provide feedback on those draft scoping requirements. Save Western Port certainly did that as a group. I put in my own submission about what I thought were the flaws in the scoping requirements. The final scoping requirements were released in February 2019 and it took AGL and APA about 18 months to prepare the statement. Meanwhile, opposition to the project continued to grow. The news, Mornington Peninsula, February 12, 2019. Organisers of the 50th Western Port Festival at Hastings say they've knocked back potential sponsorship from AGL despite being short of money. A unanimous vote was passed to not accept any AGL money, citing community concerns over the power provider's plans to moor a floating gas import and processing terminal at Crib Point. One of the really big high moments for us was May Day, May the 1st, 2019. All the candidates for the federal election came into Balnaring Hall, we filled it up, and they all signed a petition against AGL. We had every single political candidate saying they opposed this project. We even had the Clive Palmer party. (laughs) Like, that's never happened before. But there were tough times ahead. Coming up, we'll hear what the community had to do to engage with the next stages of the environmental effects statement process. You're on 3CR, and it's Radiothon Month. And do think about supporting 3CR during this year's Radiothon. You can contribute by calling the station during business hours on 9419-8377 or going to the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. 
Tonight on Communication Mixdown, we're digging into the Save Western Port campaign to look at what it took to stop energy giant AGL from installing a floating storage regasification unit, or FSRU, at Crib Point in Western Port Bay on the Mornington Peninsula. Just before the announcement, we heard that an environmental effects statement for the project was being prepared by AGL and APA, the group planning the pipeline from Crib Point to Pakenham. That statement was exhibited for public comment on July the 2nd, 2020. That's almost a year ago now. And the community had 40 business days to write their submissions. I asked Candy Van Rood, president of Safe Western Port, how COVID-19 restrictions affected the work of the campaign. One of the difficulties was that we couldn't meet. During the EES itself, we only had a very short period of time for us to read through all those pages, technical language, so we had to hire experts to read it for us and put in submissions. We've got an environmental lawyer on our committee, and she was just absolutely exhausted. She was going 24 hours a day just about, just fielding all the questions and calls and people wanting advice about how to write certain things. And she really led us through that EES process. It was incredible. And that environmental lawyer was Chris Atmore. Walking a fine line in terms of everything that was happening with COVID. And then on top of that, having to try and address this profoundly damaging project and work like mad things to engage with the process at a time when we were already pretty thin on resources. It it was a hard slog. It was very difficult to remain positive at times because we were stretched so thinly. The environment effects statement was a multi-volume, 11,000-page document. You had to get your head around that before you could even make a legal submission. We had already been doing some work against the project with Environment Victoria and the Victorian National Parks Association. We decided that perhaps the best way to approach it was for the three organisations to be joint legal clients and then get a legal service to actually represent us. The three clients were Save Western Port, Environment Victoria and Victoria National Parks Association. Environmental Justice Australia, which is a legal practice allocated to lawyers to act on our behalf in the hearing. We couldn't hold a public protest the entire time of the EES because of COVID, but there were other very creative ways that people showed their opposition. There's one guy who's become a local legend He made his own signs against AGL and would just put them up everywhere along the roadside. They would regularly be removed and then he would just put more up. I have memories of driving around the peninsula and starting to see these signs going up saying no AGL. We were a bit confused because we were working in and out of Australia at the time. So we'd come home for a couple of weeks and see more signs up and we're like, what have AGL done to upset everyone around here? It was amazing how that informed us and informed so many people in the community that this was going on and never let us forget that it was still happening. It's a really old school method, but it worked such a treat. Sasha Guggenheimer, business person and marine scientist. She studied at Monash and Deakin Universities here in Melbourne and was part of the team at the Centre for Marine Science and Technology at Curtin University. She has special interest in marine mammal acoustics. 
Sasha wrote an individual submission and spoke at the hearings on the environmental effects statement, held from October 12th to December 17th. 2020. I just felt really blessed that I had had this experience working with the Centre for Marine Science and Technology because I became aware of what it takes to measure ambient noise and the sound profiles of a marine scape. It would just be a really easy one for AGL to tick off to provide the environmental effects for their planning in Western Port. But there was absolutely nothing done of it. It was it was quite off-putting because I just asked for the physical copies of the marine aspect. I thought, well, I can contribute to the marine side. And it was four giant binders of research. It wasn't in any sort of logical sequence. There would be part of one experiment in volume one and part of it in volume three. And it was just a, a mess to really get your head around. I was also really happy that COVID was here because I run a skincare company now and I had the time to read through these four volumes. It really was below par. For example, if you're going to make an assessment of how sound travels underwater, then we really need to know what the ambient noise of the site is. That just requires putting a noise logger in, securing it to the seafloor for a year, Minimum would be great, so you get all the seasons. A um, couple of years would be better. You know, just to get an idea of how noisy it is and what's the damage already from the marina. They just made an assumption that the marina is already causing impacts, but without any measurement. And then we also need to know what the benthic substrate is. What's the seafloor made out of? Because that alters the way that sound travels. And we need to do some depth profiling to work out how deep is the water because that alters the way that sound travels underwater. But most importantly, we need to know how loud is the FSRU operation that they were proposing and what's the frequency of the sound that's being generated. None of these measurements had been taken. They had assumed and taken values of the frequency and the sound pressure of other ships in other areas that were very different sizes as well. And they just used those figures in to do a little bit of modelling. So it looks like they've touched on the subject, but they hadn't done any modelling about that site specifically. And if they don't do that, we don't know how that sound is going to travel in that site specifically. It's just really basic industry measurements as well and not expensive but I guess it's a corner that they felt they might be able to cut because how many people in the community have experience in marine sound profiling and with the EES process it's really all left up to the community and who can contribute to writing in or whether we can raise funds as the Save Western Port campaign did so well to bring in experts so the onus is left on us to refute this sort of research. And the community did have to raise funds to engage the experts they needed to challenge some of the information or lack of information in the environmental effects statement provided by AGL and APA. Here's Julia Stockett, Secretary of Safe Western Port. The commitment for each environmental or uh, technical expert witness was between eight and $12,000. So we would have had a witness on 
several more areas if we could have afforded it, but we really had to decide what would be our greatest areas of impact and also who we could source in the very limited time available. We determined that environmental and social impacts would be our main points. The information that AGL provided was very limited, so they were the areas that we decided to focus on. Our local councillor, David Gill, who has opposed the project, reported that the council had to commit over $200,000 to their work to oppose AGL. They had a great barrister and expert witnesses, very critical of AGL's reports about the impacts of chlorine toxicity, the potential for chlorine to bioaccumulate in the food chain. Julia Stockett, Secretary of Save West Report. I wondered what Sasha Guggenheimer thought about the chlorine. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's just... Oh, it's just crazy to think that anyone would try and defend the amount of chlorine that's planned to go into Western Port. What they said is that it's okay, the chlorine will break down into chloride eventually, and after a few days, there's not going to be an accumulation of chlorine in the system. But that's looking at it from a static point of view, that the chlorine is expelled and then no chlorine is expelled after that. But not that it's like a reoccurring process every single day. And the tidal movements, which are huge in Western Port, weren't factored in to what that was going to do to the environment. Marine scientist and local business person. Sasha Guggenheimer. Like Sasha, Belinda Lewis also put in an individual submission, drawing on her background as an anthropologist. She was concerned about the social impact. The complete oversight on the part of the proponent, AGL, to understand the community at all. And that ranged from Indigenous cultural heritage through to the relationship that community members have with the natural environment over multiple generations now. And we wanted to document the actual actions that AGL had taken, which during the four-year process had already created substantial community division, for example, offering large sums of money to disadvantaged groups, dangling a carrot in front of groups and organisations that were struggling for money. That's one example. But there are many, many others. But despite these concerns and more than 6,000 community submissions that argued against the project, Social impact did not carry a lot of weight in the final decision. Here's Chris Atmore. They consider the impacts on the plants and animals, but they also consider community impacts. How are people going to feel about this project? How is their recreational opportunity going to be affected? How is their driving to work every day going to be affected? You know, traffic considerations, all those sorts of things. So what was really disappointing about Minister Wynne's assessment was social impact got very short shrift. So both the committee and the minister, despite all the evidence, we had a social impact expert, you know, a lot of other evidence about how strongly people feel about this place, the impact on their mental health, knowing that if this project went ahead, not only are you keeping on with fossil fuels and pollution and and all those issues, but of course the threat to the Ramsar site. And basically the minister and the committee both concluded that that could be managed, that it wasn't really that big a deal. You know, that people, people would get used to it. The construction was only going to last for sort of a year or two. So, you know, people would get over that 
we were very lucky that the area that we care about is subject to an international convention because in the end, that appears to be what helped to sway Richard Wynne's assessment. He was worried about the chlorine, but his worry was kind of exacerbated by his knowledge that this is a Ramsar wetland and therefore the bar should be lower in terms of what you're allowed to do. I asked Jane Carnegie, Vice President of Safe Western Port, if she knew what she was getting into when she joined the campaign. No, the answer is absolutely no. And every single person, I think, in in this state or in other states that's had to be part of one of these processes really has absolutely no idea. I mean, if I go back to when I talked how, how excited we all were when the EES was announced, you know, it, then we had no idea. It didn't dawn on us what was actually involved. It was really as we, we stepped through the process that it became clearer and clearer how difficult this was going to be, how essentially the process is stacked against the community. It rests on the premise that the community doesn't understand the process and doesn't recognise that just saying, well, we, you know, as a community or as individuals in the community, um, we, we don't support this project. That is never going to be enough. It's never going to be enough. Your submissions alone are not going to sway. You really have to have expert evidence. You have to have legal representation. And, of course, there are massive costs to all of this, to any community, which is operating off donations. It's a funny process, the whole ES, because in theory it's all about the law, but in practice a lot of it is about politics. So you're always playing both games when you take against a project and you go through that process. You've got one eye on the sort of political picture and the sort of policy implications and you've got one eye on what you can actually do through the legal framework. On the face of it, it, it's a decision made within a legal framework, but of course it's a decision that's also subject to a whole lot of other factors. I wondered what Candy Van Root, president of Save Western Port, had learned during the campaign. Never give up. You know, they do a lot of posturing, their press releases or communications, which sound like they're far way ahead of where they actually are. They talk all the time as if it's going to happen, whatever we do. You have to be very strong to not buy that. You have to actually sort of wear like a Teflon suit to stop yourself from getting eroded away by all their marketing lines and all their nonsense that they constantly communicate out, as if they've got the entitlement and the right to just override the community. The other thing I learned very much is that the thing about a community is you have to keep people together on the same page. What advice would you give to people who are just starting out? Communicate, communicate, communicate. All I knew, because I'm a visual artist, was the beauty of this place. And so I just started taking photographs of the beauty that I saw, educating them. Where is this place? How far away is it from where you live? So it started off as a sort of not-in-my-backyard campaign, but then what you do is you link it to how important it is on a global level. How can you possibly trade that off for some great corporate that comes in for the profits of a few when a whole community thrives and is held by this, the beauty of a natural place like this? I guess we could also think about industries that 
exist down here likely to be seriously damaged by something like this. So whose work is being valued here? Well, whose jobs? Absolutely correct. And when we broadcast the information to the fishermen, you know, and it is a recreational fishing area now, all the ecotourism, people who surf, when we showed them how it would affect them, that's when you really ignite a spark. And what we've shown, I think, is that when you've got a passionate community who love a place and who, whose whole lives revolve around it, whether it's for recreation or for, for their work, then you get a very powerful, unstoppable force. It's about making them accountable. I see the EES process as a microcosm of, of what rights we have to defend the environment in this country. Everything that sort of went on in that process is writ large in Australia in terms of how much power the average person actually gets to have in the face of corporate interests. And if we can reform the EES process to make it genuinely democratic, I suspect Australia, you know, the whole legal framework for protecting the environment will look very, very different. But it's not going to happen without a big push, I think, from the ordinary person. People used to say to me, oh, you'll never win that. You know, it's David and Goliath. And I said, but who won? You know, David won. And he won using God, if you like, but I call it love. You know, and I say, love won. <laughs> yeah. Love will change the colors that you see. Turn around the darkest part of you and me. Bury it when trouble comes around. Celebrations were coming to an end as I left Balnearing Common, but the music was still going. I ran into a woman at the gate and asked my usual question. What brings you out today? Today is a celebration that the power of the people were able to stop the gas giant AGL from putting this filthy floating gas restorification unit in Western Port Bay and damn this community worked hard. Thank you to all the people who spoke to me for the show, and special thanks to Julia Stockett, Secretary of Safe Western Port. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855 AM. Tune in and listen up. Judith Peppard there with that report from the community who stopped one of the most environmentally irresponsible proposals of late, a floating storage and regasification unit, from going ahead in Western Port Bay here in Victoria, thanks to Judith and the Communications Mixdown team. You can catch Communication Mixdown every Monday from 6pm here on 3CR. And you're with Jacob this morning on 3CR Breakfast. Welcome to those who just joined us. Still to come on the program this morning, we speak with Chris Breen from the Refugee Action Collective about the recent hunger strikes at Broadmeadows Detention Centre. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival returns with a huge showcase of factual filmmaking. Highlights include Cry of the Forests, a look at WA's sacred southwest forests and the activists trying to protect them. Mental as Anything, a heartwarming story about what it's like to live with mental illness. The Price of Truth, a look at Julian Assange and WikiLeaks with never-before-seen interviews. And many more. July 21st to 31st at Cinema Nova. 
a 3CR supporter. The census is happening this August. Your answers help make a better future for all of us. Like the number of babies, so health services know where we need mums and bubs programs. And the number of people and communities to plan local transport services. You can help tell our story. Look out for instructions on what to do. For more info, visit census.abs.gov.au. Authorised by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. Good morning. You're on 3CR Breakfast. Up next, a report from Alice and Ella from Wednesday Breakfast, speaking with Tish King from Indigenous climate activist group Seed Mob about some dangerous shale gas fracking happening in the Northern Territory. Now we're going to go to a track from Black Paradise. This is Thursday Island. And when we come back, we're going to be speaking with Tish King uh, from Seed Mob about Northern Territory fracking.
And that was Black Paradise with Thursday Island. The theme for this NADOC is, of course, um, hill country, which is incredibly important and something that First Nations people have been fighting for since invasion. But devastatingly, just last week, Labour and Liberal National governments in the Northern Territory voted to open up huge parts of the Beetaloo Basin in the Northern Territory to frack, which will spew out more carbon pollution than the Adani coal mine. The traditional owners of the Beetaloo Basin said no, but Labour and Liberal didn't listen to them. They only listened to the donors in the end. Our guest today um, is Tashiko King from Seedmob, a proud Zenedith Kez Torres Strait Islander woman with strong connections to Messig Island and Badu Island and is the community organiser at Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network. Tish, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, good morning, Alice. Thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. And Tish... Um, could you just tell our listeners a little bit more about what's happening in the Northern Territory regarding this fracking information that we found out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, before I begin, to, I would like to acknowledge country, and I'm sure there are listeners from different areas, but I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nations, and I would like to pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Uh, happy NADOC week to all you mob up there tuning in, and I'd like to extend my respects out to all you well. Um, and so, um, everyone, as Alice said, I am a community organiser at Seed Mob, and, you know, for those who actually don't know who Seed Mob are, we've been uh, building together the capacity of young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to come together to collectively take actions on our campaigns, but also, like, importantly, stand up for, you know, the, um, you know, impacts that they're fighting on their own country. And so um, one of our large campaigns um, has been supporting the traditional custodians of the uh, countries that are being impacted by big mining corporations that want to come in and sack their country. And so it's been a bit of a journey since 2014, but I guess, you know, looking at how much what's happened to the landscape in the last year with, you know, our government really pushing this gas-led recovery, we're seeing our government funneling out money and using our public money for their, you know, to fund these projects. And so Alice, that wind that came in um, actually a couple of weeks ago was that when that Senate, the, uh, the Senate voted for a federal inquiry about $50 million going into the Beetaloo Basin. 
and so which is super incredible for the campaign and for the people and other um, organizations like the First Nations just thing like get up that have been actively involved uh, with um, you know you know supporting these people um, and communities that are on the front lines yeah I think that's what shocked me when I was reading up about it that actually it was it is publicly funded to get the to get it off the ground, the fracking in the Bo- the Beetaloo Basin. And did you also just mention that ahead of that, it looked as if um, the community had won their fight against fracking in the NT? Uh, I wouldn't go as far to say as that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, it's a long journey because, you know, the process of how our systems are. And so... I guess at the moment, and especially with, you know, this being such an important week of here country, it's a, you know, a reminder that we need to really advocate and protect our country so that really our, our mm-hmm. country can protect us. Yeah. And so there's this fact that we have this inquiry. It just now makes, you know, governments more accountable about where that public money is going to because here we are still in a pandemic. And there's still, you know, not enough vaccines yet. We're seeing more money, more public money, go towards these fossil fuel industries. And I know for sure I certainly would like my money to go to, I don't know, maybe more health resources. Absolutely. And how long have the traditional owners of the Beetaloo Basin been fighting to protect it from fracking? So... Gas has sort of always been around in this country. Yeah. And so um, it wasn't until in uh, some of the community members reached out to um, our speed leaders uh, that they were concerned about this fracking business, but, you know, um, didn't know too much about it and just wanted to come in and actually invited uh, seed into community. And so, you know... Um, it's been a journey for those communities that, that have been in, um, uh, you know, on those front lines um, fighting this. And that's been, well, gosh, 2014. It's been so far away, that right? long ago. Yeah. But like six years, seven years. And, you know, it's been a bit of a journey where, you know, they did campaign and they, they you know, uh, got a mor- uh, moratorium. Um, you know, by, you know, p- petitioning and, you know, having community conversations. Um, and then, you know, that was sort of lifted in 2018 um, by the Ghana government. And so, you know, as a sort of thing, you know, the big world landscape change, it sort of, you know, dictates, obviously, the push for gas in this country. And here we are just really, um, you know, they're being so... Their strength and resilience is really incredible. You know, it's a testament, um, you know, to them and all their hard work and really wanting to be, um, you know, really stand up for community. And hey, Tish, Ella here. I was just wondering, could you tell us a little more about the Beetaloo Basement and the um, the landscape and the area they're proposing to frack? Yeah, so um, the Beetaloo Basin is in the um located in the uh Barclay region which is where they are intending to um you know go ahead with oil and glass 
exploration and production. The basin itself, you know, is a water source and for so many traditional owner groups. Like there are um like there are five ma- like major nations, the Gudanji, Yanyuwa, Garawa, Jingali, Madura and Alawa that, you know, have really been like uh that 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 though that basin has been the water source and life for a lot of their, you know, cultural significant sites, you know, their, you know, sacred, you know, spaces for men and women's business. It has, you know, provided them their, you know, their medicine uh, and given them, you know, given life to their food. And so if, you know, fracking were to go along and, you know, pollute that basin, that would just desecrate and destroy so much of um, our, you know, diverse and wonderful, you know, country. And I believe the um, the argument also against it at the moment is that it's the time of year they're looking to do this and the floods, the potential flooding and the contamination of water is a really serious issue right now. Absolutely, that's it. When it comes to wet season or, or you know, massive, you know, long storm surges, which is what, you know, we're seeing right now, you know, natural weather events being exacerbated by climate change, you know, with that, it's like you just said, like as the water rises and it floods, all that gas that has like been, you know, like permeated through all the cracks from them, you know, fracking and fracturing our country is actually just poisonous through to our water source, which comes up and then it actually comes up to land. Mm. And so, you know, that like, it's a, you know, it's such a, you know, not only like a health and climate issue, it's like a human rights issue. Like it could really have you know detrimental, detrimental, and you know we've seen like the, like over in Turtle Island, like in North America, the carcinogenic you know impact it has on people's health. Absolutely, and so we definitely at 3CR and our listeners will want to protest this huge betrayal um, to these traditional owners by the government. And so, how do we do that? So the best um, right now is if everyone head to um, seedmob.org.au or if you're on socials, on Instagram or Facebook, there are links to our um, our recent uh, uh, petition, mm-hmm. um, but more so it's um, supporting uh, the traditional owners on an open letter that they're taking, um, that is supporting the Senate inquiry. And so the more um, signatures that we can get that, the more that we can sort of raise this up, you know, in Parliament and say, like, there are so many reasons to be concerned as well. Absolutely. And I'm on um, your website now, seedmob.org.au, and there's so much information on here. Um, If you head to the news page and the stories, you'll be able to, um, yeah, really educate yourself on what's happening out there. And um, Tish, obviously, it's NADOC week, and how will you be spending this week? You know, it's it's always an amazing time because... It's full of colour in life and really celebrating, you know, the achievements for all of our mobs. But I guess it's a landscape, it's just so, un, you know, so uncertain and so many things have been cancelled. But, 
you know, as an important reminder, like Hill Country is, you know, we're so connected and intertwined with, you know, our country and our oceans and our lands and rivers. You know, I think it's, uh, you know, I want to be spending it just in a nice space and, you know, really respecting our, you know, our country. And, uh, you know, giving me the mother, which means love and life, to, you know, keep advocating for her in this space. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Tish, for joining us today. Have a wonderful NADOC week, and we'll speak to you really soon, I'm sure. Awesome. Thank you, Alice. Have a great day. You too. And that was Tashiko King. Um, Yeah, and I think if, I mean, Hill Country, if you want to to really honour that, then um, getting onto the website and signing this petition or submitting something is really important. You can just head to seedmop.org.au. There we go. Um, and all the information is on the website. So it's definitely something I'm going to be doing. And also just looking out for the climate activists and the Indigenous climate activists and supporting them. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's go to a track from Blanche. This is Wake.
That was Blanche with Wake. Before that track, we had Ella and Alice from Wednesday Breakfast with a report on the gas fracking happening at the Beedaloo site in the Northern Territory. Submissions for the Senate inquiry unfortunately closed last Thursday. However, you can support SeedMob by visiting their website, nt.seedmob.org.au, and you can read a little more about the campaign to stop fracking in the Northern Territory Donate some money if you have the means. Uh, sign the pledge to switch your energy from Origin Energy. Currently, 51% of the Northern Territory is under oil and gas licenses, so this is definitely something that's worth your attention. Um, so up next, we have a song called Running Late by Oscar Keysung. I wanna be done for a week, this 
and Peaceful Australian Network, IPAN, has launched a National People's Inquiry into the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in the US-led wars, the US alliance and its alternatives. The inquiry aims to promote a national conversation and is currently inviting submissions from organisations and individuals. The great majority of Australians have never been asked about this alliance its implications and its limitations, which has led to an uncritical foreign policy. It's time this changed. To make a submission, go to independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. That's independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. Submissions close on the 31st of July. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. Good morning. Welcome to those who are just joining us now. You're on 3CR Breakfast with Jacob. That track was Running Late by Oscar Kiesung and Andrus. Now, last week, members of the Refugee Action Collective gathered outside Broadmeadows Detention Centre. The rally was held in solidarity with 15 detained refugees who are hunger-striking for their freedom after being brought to Australia for medical treatment under the Medivac legislation. According to the Department of Home Affairs, there were 1497 refugees still detained as of the 30th of April 2021. And joining us now is a spokesperson for the Vic Refugee Action Collective, Chris Breen. Chris, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about what these refugees at Broadmeadows were striking against? 
Uh, they were on hunger strike against indefinite detention. Uh, so they were asked, they've, they've been in detention for eight years. July the 19th will be the start of the ninth year that they've been detained. They spent six years offshore, uh, two years here. And they were uh, asking what's the difference between them and other Medivac refugees who've been released. There's been about uh, 100 released, um, and the, the coalition government is saying they're not uh, releasing the rest of the refugees, and there's been recent High Court case and changes to the Migration Act, which has cemented indefinite detention in law. Uh, and so they were they were saying they wanted their freedom. Uh, they demanded to know the difference between them and um, other refugees who'd been released. And it was a, you know, a, a desperate uh, cry for help. And there's probably some elements of um, resignation syndrome, like we saw with, uh, you know, children and their families. So on the one hand, it's, you know, protest. On the other hand, just we can't do this anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And so they've been in detention for almost nine years, some of them now. Have yes. they all received the medical treatment that they were brought to Australia for? Um, no, some have, some haven't. Uh, it's... It, it differs in different cases. Uh, certainly people who have come here for mental health treatment uh, often um, have spent months waiting for um, appointments. Uh, they're lucky if they get them. And uh, you know, their mental health simply can't improve in detention. It's widely recognised. It's detention which destroys uh, their, their mental health. It's, it, you know, um, and there are certainly other people who have not received um, medication. They've been told that treatment for their teeth is too expensive. They have to have all their teeth out. I mean, there's a friend of mine who's been released uh, now. One of the released many back refugees he had shrapnel in his shoulder and head from the Sri Lankan Civil War and in the whole eight years he was in detention, never had that treated. Uh, taking the shrapnel out of his shoulder would have been quite um, simple and it's a you know, damning indictment of how Australia has treated people who came uh, seeking help. So there were yeah, 15 refugees um, on hunger strike for uh, two weeks um, They've ended that hunger strike now because they were concerned about the health of some of them who'd been hospitalised. Um, there was 14 uh, Medivac refugees. One of them was actually a guy with a separate case who came by plane two years ago. He's now been released, which is um, uh, very welcome. There's still one man in the northern hospital who has lost a lot of, lot of weight and is not well. But for the, those who've ended their hunger strike, nothing has changed. They're still detained, um, and we're still saying that has to end. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely plenty of horror stories coming out of the detention centres there. And you mentioned that some of the refugees have been released, and I know that there's been over a 100 of them that were released earlier in 2021. Do we know why the government is, is still detaining people when, when so many of them have already been released? Uh, no, we don't. The government hasn't, well, the government hasn't given any explanation. Uh, the refugees who were released, uh, Peter Dutton said that it was too expensive and it was cheaper to keep them in community detention. Uh, that would be true for those who are still detained. It's too expensive in financial terms. It's too expensive in human terms uh, to keep them locked up. What we do know about the first 
uh, batch of refugees who were released, the Medivac ones, they all had cases before the federal court. And they had applied to go back to uh, Papua New Guinea or Nauru, saying, like, after a year here and not getting treatment, they said, we don't want to stay here, we want to go back, and they weren't being returned. Um, and those federal court cases were likely to have found their detention was unlawful. Before they could rule, uh, the government just let those refugees out. Uh, now that the, the, the law has been, um, some of the, the, those mechanisms are less likely to, to find that detention is unlawful. It's very unlikely that the rest will get out in the same way, and it's going to take uh, protests to get them out. But the government hasn't said anything about why these ones and not those ones. That's you know uh, our speculation. It's not something from the government. But the Refugee Action Collective has a, a protest uh, next Monday, July 19th, which will mark the start of the ninth year of detention. And we're having a rally outside the Park Hotel uh, where there's still 33 of the uh, Medivac refugees held. Wow, yes. So as as per usual, a very disappointing response uh, from the government. And uh, you mentioned there was a protest happening next Monday. What do we hope will be the eventual outcome for people detained and on a wider scale uh, for Australia's immigration system? I mean, what we've been fighting for all this time is for refugees not to spend a single day in detention. Uh, you know, it's, it's nine years now, and I think the ultimate outcome should be to free uh, these men as soon as possible for them to be given uh, compensation. Uh, we do know that the people who've been released have been released on just six-month uh, departure pending visas, bridging visas. Um, you know, they've had no opportunity during those eight years to pick up education and skills and uh, experience. Mm. So it's very hard for them to rebuild their lives. Uh, so they need to be given permanent visas. Uh, but the, for the, those still in, the, the ultimate thing is they need to be released. And I think also, the, I mean, the government's policy of offshore detention, of indefinite uh, detention, needs to cease. It is destroying people. I mean, it's intended to destroy people. We're seeing globally a race to the bottom. I mean, the UK has now uh, started to copy Australia's offshore uh, detention system, uh, intending to ship refugees to Rwanda, um, just like Australia is, you know, bullying poorer countries, PNG and Nauru, United Kingdom's copying that. And there is an important to importance globally to stopping what the Australian government uh, is doing. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's embarrassing, our response on a, on a global scale. Um, and you mentioned as well there's a protest next Monday. Is there anything else our listeners can do to support the Refugee Action Collective? Yeah, so that protest is 5.30 uh, Hotel, which is opposite Lincoln Square, 701 Swanson Street, uh, Carlton. Uh, the Sunday after that, uh, refugee communities themselves, uh, Iranian, Hazara, uh, Tamils and others have come together to call a protest for permanent visas, not discrimination, um, because it's not just those in detention, but there are uh, tens of thousands of people around the country um, who have spent, you know, eight years on temporary visas, whether TPVs or bridging visas. Um, often they can't get welfare on these uh, visas and are in desperate poverty. And they've, they've called a rally for Enough is Enough, and so that's 2 o'clock Sunday the 25th at the State Library. 
And I guess the last thing, if people want to find out uh, more information about the the changes to the Migration Act that the coalition rushed through Parliament and Labor shamefully voted for, um, and the recent ALJ20 High Court case, we've got a forum on um, August the 2nd at 6.30 at the Kathleen Syme Library uh, with David Burke from the Human Rights Law Centre and Bali, who was one of the hunger strikers and indefinitely detained refugees, uh, talking about indefinite detention and you know how we can keep up the fight from here. Definitely. Well, some great actions for our listeners to take there. Chris, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me on. Not a worry. Um, so 5.30 next Monday the 19th outside the Park Hotel. Um, so now on to our next topic. On Saturday, July the 3rd, hundreds of people gathered in Melbourne continuing to protest the escalation of conflict in Gaza. We make it count. When enough people get together and act, the government will be forced to question their involvement in ethnic cleansing. Please support the Palestinians. Online and nationwide, right across Australia from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival's Documentary Month showcases the best local and international documentaries. Check out the incredible lineup at mdff.org.au, cinemanova.com.au and watch.eventive.org forward slash mdff and book your tickets and streams today. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. So our final speaker is Shams. Shams is an organiser at Free Palestine Melbourne um, and a Palestinian activist and long-time organiser. Please give it up for Shams. Free Palestine is a community organization dedicated to raising public awareness of the Palestinians' hundred-of-year struggle for freedom. We seek to build Australia-Palestinian solidarity by engaging in political activism in Melbourne and joining international campaigns that oppose Israelis' ongoing colonization of Palestine. My name's Shams. I was born in Lebanon and I lived my life in Australia. I grew up all my life with my parents who has never stopped speaking about Palestine. In 1948, the Zionist gangs attacked my parents' peaceful village. My late father, who was 14 years old, and my mother, who was around two, they, along with their families and all the other villages from Akbara, were driven into exile. My grandfather was killed because he refused to leave his village. Shame. It forced my grandmother to flee the village with my father and his five siblings. And my other grandmother, who was forced to flee, 
in fact, and if it wasn't for her bravely, for my uncle bravely, um, my uncle Rashid here, she would not be alive here today. Barely an after my grandma, an hour after my grandmother left her village, she realised she has forgotten my mother in bed, and she was forced. My uncle was forced to risk return. I want you to just take a moment and just try and imagine what went through the minds of my grandparents and everyone else in the family. Think of the sheer fear and the horror reflected upon them by the Israeli gang. This is alone an answer to those who unjustly say Palestinians chose to leave. My parents witnessed the beginning of refugee camps both in Syria and Lebanon. And in 1976, my family had to flee another wave of violence and this time the Lebanese civil war. I was told later it was a bombshell that fell on our house and split the roof in Sabra Shatila. And it nearly killed myself and my brother. If my mother didn't decide to take us with her to buy flour. Today my mother still tells us stories of what her parents witnessed during Nakba. And it has been 73 years and my mother is still waiting, dreaming, and still believing she will return to Akbara. And we will return. After the past decade, decades, Israel has occupied more than 50% of the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, to accommodate the illegal settlements Military, military bases and so-called state lands. Shame. Shame. This is all because United States and its allies gave the green light to Israel to occupy land. And this has caused occupation of Akbara, which is my birthplace of my parents. It is especially important and we need to put into practice what is necessary today and for the future. We need to build an international movement, continue our resistance movement and not stop after the bombing of Gaza stops. And once the bombing has stopped, we need to ensure, will Israel government allow the building materials into Gaza to rebuild Gaza again? Will they, will they completely withdraw Israel's occupation forces from Gaza? Will they totally seize all bombing, shooting, threatening and over, overflights of Gaza? Will they open the borders, crossings and the tra transportation of food and clean water? and medical supplies? Will they have 
free access to media to reveal the situation in Gaza? Will they re release all the Palestinian prisoners in Israel custody? And what kind of steps will we need to take to help defeat the Zionist war machines and end the oppression of the Palestinians? How can we stop Israelis the practice of genocide? And how are we all going to stop these actions? By, by rallies. They are certainly essential and direct actions. We, need, we must target those mass media outlets that refuse to report what's going on in Gaza and, West, and blank out the mass protest movement in Palestine. We need to get together to block and shut down factories in Victoria making weapons shipped to Israel. Shame! I was one of the group activists who closed the doors of Albert Systems and the workers were asked not to attend work for the day. That was a great achievement. Woo! And I believe this is just the beginning of building mass campaigns to stop arming Israel. We need to boycott Israel products. And we need as much support involvement as possible to really make it count. When enough people get together and act, the government will be forced to question their involvement in ethnic cleansing. Please support the Palestinians. Some compelling words there from Shams Musa speaking there in Melbourne at the most recent rally calling for the cessation of conflict in Gaza. Protesters are asking governments to take a stand against the ongoing genocide against Palestine communities. Aaron Milvaganim also spoke at the rally. Now our next speaker, his name is Aaron. He's the head of the Tamil Refugee Council. He's a long-time Palestinian supporter and also an Indigenous rights fighter. Please give him a warm welcome, everyone. Thank you for that. I'm a member of the Ulam Tamil community, and I want to say that Ulam Tamils all over the world stand in solidarity with Palestine as the State of Israel mass murder Palestinians, steal their land, and use international institutions to whitewash their crimes. As the Israeli state choked Palestinians with firm backing of large imperial states, solidarity from every part of the world is what is needed, as unchallenged injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. But for rule and Tamils, our solidarity is more personal. As an oppressed group in Sri Lanka, our struggles share too many similarities. Israel, as world leader in military technology, has contributed to so much of our misery. This week, Sri Lanka signed with Israel a $50 million contract to renew its Kivir warplanes. 
These kefir warplanes terrorized Tamils for the last 25 years. It is these warplanes that bombed my school and murdered my brother. It is these warplanes that massacred over 50 orphan school kids in 2006 in Tamililam. Both our struggles started in the late 40s in the hands of those using old myths to create an ethno-religious chauvinist state. Like the Zionists claim, extreme singular Buddhists in Sri Lanka claim that they can't live in peace unless the island is exclusive to Theravada Buddhism. State-sponsored settlements are popping up everywhere in the Tamil homeland and the military alone occupies 40% of the Tamil homeland. Similarities are not only in how each state treats our people. Those international actors who back Israel and Sri Lanka are the same. In Australia, every Australian politician who sent back Tamil refugees to the Rajabaksha regime have also been recognized by Israeli state as their supporters. From Julia Gillard to Scott Morrison, politicians from both major political parties have aided the genocidal agenda of both states. And whenever Israeli state murder Palestinians, it is infuriating to see Australia's Labour Party put out statement calling on both sides to stop their attacks rather than calling out the Israeli state. This is no different to how they put out media releases in 2009 when tens of thousands of Tamils were getting murdered. And the so-called our representatives in Palestine and Sri Lanka are no different. In Sri Lanka, we have Tamil National Alliance that effectively shields the genocidal state. And the Palestinian Authority is no different. As we have seen in the last week with the killing of activist Nizabinat. And in 2014, Mahmoud Abbas awarded Mahinda Rajabaksha with the Palestinian star, a man who murdered over 100,000 Tamils in 2009 being awarded Palestinian star is a betrayal to the Palestinian struggle. And it is inspiring to see Palestinians overcoming these traitors and organize independently. We can see mass mobilizations starting to erupt in Palestine and around the world. And on behalf of the Tamil community, I want to pledge our solidarity and support for Palestine. We will stand with Palestine till we know Palestinians are free from the shackles of national oppression. And I want to finish by saying, in our thousands and in our millions, we are all Palestinians. That was Aaron Milvagenen speaking there in Melbourne at the most recent rally calling for the cessation of conflict in Gaza. For updates on the Palestinian movement, you can tune in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday on 3CR at 930 
Um, and you can also visit the website Australians for Palestine, APAN.org.au. Um, well, that brings us to the end of our breakfast show this morning. My name's Jacob. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for your company. Just a reminder as well, while June has ended, uh, Radiothon is over, but you can still donate some money to our station. You can visit the website www.3cr.org.au, um, or you can call us up 94198377, um, and pledge a donation. And those donations are also tax deductible, um, at the next tax period. Okay. Stay tuned now for Women on the Line. And tune in tomorrow for Tuesday Breakfast. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival returns with a huge showcase of factual filmmaking. Highlights include Cry of the Forests, a look at WA's sacred southwest forests and the activists trying to protect them. Mental as Anything, a heartwarming story about what it's like to live with mental illness. The Price of Truth, a look at Julian Assange and WikiLeaks with never-before-seen interviews. And many more. July 21st to 31st at Cinema Nova. A 3CR supporter. CR is a community radio licence holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music, programs for children and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in the operation of this station. Copies of the code are available from the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are.